Acts 25. We left off with Felix, who was uh, uh, finished up with his his uh, duties and was relieved. And Festus came into town. I didn't get to uh, go over this part of it with you later on or uh, last week, but um, Felix, his wife, uh, when I don't know if we, if you know this, there were two prominent people who died in the eruption, the volcanic eruption of Pompeii. And she was one of them. She died in that, uh, that eruption. Um, I had the name of the other guy written down. Um, he's the one we mostly know, but she also died. His, uh, his, which, it's his Felix's second wife, who was Jewish. She died in that one. And um, he did marry a third time. He did not die. and Apparently he was not there or just was there and didn't die. I imagine he wasn't there. And, uh, but she'll come into play just a little bit here, so I just wanted to mention that to you. Verse 1. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. doesn't really give us the reason why he went. Maybe it was just to uh, touch base with the folks back there and to uh, take care of some matters. And he's a new guy in, just wanted to touch base with one of the more prominent cities in the region that he had. But at any rate, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. So again, they're going to try this ambush thing to get Paul on the, on the way. Now, it's been two years since Paul has been in prison. He hasn't been in anybody's hair, so to speak. <laughs> he hasn't been causing any riots or being... Uh, but this... Paul is still fresh on their mind. After two years of being in prison, the first thing they want to hit the, the new uh, governor with is Paul. That's just astounding to me. Two years, you would think that the emotions would have calmed down. He's not really into anything. He's kind of in a state of limbo. He's not dead, but he is uh, also not out there going from city to city, preaching the gospel and so forth. You would think they just would have left well enough alone, but nope. As soon as he gets there, they bring it up. So they asked a favor of him. They apparently had it all planned out. They, you know, we'll ask him to be brought here. Of course, you remember back in the chapters before, he was in Jerusalem where they caught him and they put him in prison there. And then as they were going to send him to Caesarea upon the request of the Jews, they were going to ambush him. Now they want to bring him back from Caesarea to Jerusalem and they want to ambush him again. So that's the uh, setting here. But Festus, Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was going there shortly. So if whether Festus knew the history of the Jews and Paul, that they had laid an ambush before, or if he didn't, we don't know. We're not told whether he knew about the ambush. We're not told whether he knew their history. All we know is he's saying... Nope, I'm going to be going up to Caesarea, and uh, you all can come up with me if you want to. Now, Caesarea in the region is a higher court in the Roman system than is Jerusalem. So he's keeping them at the higher court. It may be that the way Festus looks at this is that he was at Jerusalem, a lower court, a lower province, a lower city, and moved up to Caesarea. Therefore, we don't move him back down. That's their view. Now, the Jews would view Jerusalem as a higher city, but we're not dealing with the Jewish view. We're dealing with the Roman view, and that's uh, Festus here. So he says, no, we're going to leave them there, and if you all want to have accusations against them, you guys come on up here with me. I'm going to be there in a little while. 
Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. So he's in Jerusalem more days than he was at Caesarea upon first arriving. So he's first getting into the office three days in Caesarea, 10 days in Jerusalem. Don't know what all he was doing. It wasn't all about Paul. There were some other business he had to take care of, obviously, to keep him there for 10 days. They, wanted him, they hit him up right away. He says, I'm going there after a bit. And he stays there for a total of 10 days. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. So the day after he, he arrives in the Caesarea, and the next day, they all bring him before him. They all come before Festus. And when he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. They couldn't prove them. They had, they just made accusations, but they can't prove any of these things. It's much like we see today. Uh, depending upon the person, if the accusation is serious, we need to investigate it. Whether or not there's any proof or not makes no difference. It just depends on whether this person is, a, for the most part, you're going to find out if they are a family-oriented, if they are a, a person who's not big government, then generally whatever serious, whatever accusation is brought, we need to check it out. If they are not that way, then all kinds of things are let go. I mean, when you look at Bill Clinton and the things he did in the, the Oval Office, and um, for the most part, they wanted to let that go, which is amazing. But other people, if they send a text... We need to check this out. This is a serious offense. <laughs> so it just, it's, it's inconsistent. It's not right. Uh, I think it was just yesterday, and I went back over to get these and uh, brought my pile, and it's missing one of them. Two reports came out yesterday, totally in contrast to each other. But again, the seriousness of the charge merits our investigation, as they would put it. Uh, one person put it, one, had, uh, one of them had it this way, uh, West Antarctic glaciers in irreversible fall. Rising Seas Study. What they're saying is that there is an area in the Antarctic that has a serious thawing problem. And it is irreversible. And in the next, now this is in the article, in the next 100 years, we will see, at first, it was the first time the report came out, it said a four-foot rise in sea levels. Then it became a 13-foot Rise. I'm not sure which one was actually the, the right one, but over the next 100 years, we're going to see this because of what happened in that. So that's one article I brought in. I had a second one with it that was completely on the opposite side in which they said that everything in the South Pole, that there is more ice than ever recorded. And they gave the actual square mileage. Of the, of the ISIS there, and they also mentioned the fact that, uh, you see, these kind of things, they just want to throw stuff out. A hundred years from now, we're going to have a problem. Well, who's going to be around that's here in a hundred years to see if we have that problem? But they also call it irreversible. Well, if it's irreversible, then we can't do anything, right? But the other one was talking about the amount of ice that is there, and also mentioned, remember that uh, 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 global warming crew that went on down into the uh, Arctic areas? Uh, I believe it was in, in the South Pole area. And they, they went down to investigate the melting ice and the, the effects of global warming and all that and got stuck in ice. Got stuck in so much ice that they had to send an icebreaker to break them out 
the icebreaker got stuck in ice. They had to break a, send a second icebreaker to get them out. I forget whether they got into a third icebreaker or not. But they were actually thinking that the boat might be crushed by the ice and sink because of so much ice. <laughs> so they go out there to prove global warming and get stuck in ice. I, just, I think God just has a sense of humor about this, this whole thing. Um, I heard one person talking about how much energy it would take to melt just the South Pole. And I believe they calculated out that if we exploded 248, 49 of the largest nuclear weapons we have, it would not do it. It would not melt it. That's, that's how big God creates stuff. God creates stuff big. And we cannot... I, I was amazed at that. I thought 248 would not melt at all. I guess it would melt some, but I guess it would not melt at all. And beside that, they said the, the temperatures would go down again and everything would refreeze. So there. Again, it's the seriousness of the charge. Because it's a serious charge, the, the climate is warming. Because it's a serious charge these people have made against this person, we have to investigate it. The whole process in this country is we have hearings whenever someone is accused and at the hearing, you bring what evidence you have that a crime has been committed. Upon which the judge hearing the evidence at the hearing decides if the person should be held over for trial. His ruling is based on, is there enough evidence that a crime has been committed? If he cannot determine that a crime has been committed, what does the judge do? He dismisses it at the hearing and it never goes to trial. That's the whole purpose of that. But we forego all of that for these things because the seriousness of the charge. It's exactly the same thing that's going on here in Acts. They are bringing serious charges, hoping that the serious charges will be enough to interest the governor in holding him over. But not a single charge has any proof. And this is the thing that they do. Now look at Paul's response. Verse uh, 8. And while he answered for himself... Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. Three things about Paul's statement to bear, bear in mind. First off, those on the side of truth speak clearly. If you are on the side of truth, you will speak clearly. You will speak concisely and you will speak calmly. Anyone who's on the side of truth will speak clearly, concisely, and calmly. When you look at Jesus and how he answered the, the Pharisees and the lawyers, how did he always speak? Same way. He was clear. He was concise. He wasn't wordy. And he was calm. But how many times in the Bible, as well as we see in the present day, do you see people who go against these three things? People who are on the side of truth, if you go through the Bible, you'll see it. If you look at modern times, you'll see it as well. People that are on the side of truth, very calm. Because they are on the side of truth. They don't have anything to cover up. They're very clear. I believe. I think. This happened. It went this way. They're very clear about it. They're very concise. They don't get wordy. People that are on the side of what is false generally give paragraphs instead of sentences. Because the many words are trying to muddy it up. They, I, I marvel at how many times uh, people in politics or in the media or in all kinds of uh, places, global warming, if you ask them a question, 
they don't come with an answer, yes or no. They come with, well, and they go off and they'll spend 10, 15 minutes discussing something. And after you get done, you think, you didn't answer the question. You went all the way around it. You didn't, because they're not on the side of truth. People on the side of truth will always speak clearly, concisely, and calmly. I do enjoy politics. I don't always enjoy politicians. But I do enjoy politics. I like the idea of, of uh, uh, what goes on to, to run the country. And I've told you some of the people, candidates that I've just enjoyed listening to because they follow these things. Uh, Ronald Reagan was one of those. He was always calm. He was clear. I love listening to his speeches. He was concise. He had a lot of those uh, uh, sentences that just rang true. Uh, Herman Cain would come up. You ask him a question. What would Herman Cain say? Yes. No. <laughs> and then he'd explain the answer. I just love that conciseness that he had. Uh, Fred Thompson, Thomas, I always get his last name mixed up. Is it Thompson? Thompson. Fred Thompson. Did the same thing. Very clear. Always said, this is what I believe. This is, and it, it wasn't that thing, I believe this in this front of this group, and I believe this in front of this group. And Jesus was the same way. Jesus believed the same thing in front of the Pharisees as he did the sinners. He believed the same thing in front of the men that he did in front of the women. He always believed the same thing because truth is truth. Truth is not something that is uh, truth for the, the men, truth for the women. There's truth for the Gentiles. There's truth for the Jews. No, he wasn't that way. Truth was truth. That's all there is to it. That way you can be clear, concise, and calm. And you're going to know that about Paul. Paul, one sentence, defense. He was very clear. I haven't done anything against the law. I haven't done anything against the temple. And I haven't done anything against Caesar. You can't get any more clear than that. If you have proof, basically this is insinuated, I guess, but if you have proof that I have done anything against these things, bring it on. But he says, I haven't done anything against that, all those things. And of course, they did this with Jesus, too. Remember, they would, they would bring people up and they would try to accuse him. They did it with Stephen. They tried to bring people up and tried to accuse him. They, they did it with, um, back in the Old Testament, they did it with the guy, uh, Naboth, with the vineyard. And, and they, they brought up people, scoundrels, they, they called them, that would just uh, bear false witness against, against Naboth. I heard him say this. <laughs> and, you know, this is what they do. They've done it for thousands of years. It's the same pattern because it comes from the same enemy. So just watch. It's, it's real easy to tell who's on the truth, the side of truth. Real easy. They're clear, they're concise, and they're calm. If they're not those three things, I would check their facts. Somehow something is wrong. Verse 9. But Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor. I'll tell you what. This is not a, he is not off to a good start here. Festus wanting to do the Jews a favor. I put this in your outline. What is his job? What is Festus' job? He's a governor. His job is, well, at least one of them, administering justice does not involve favors. If you were going to administer justice, are there favors? No, favors mean that you go against what should be done to do something different. Well, all right, I should do this. You know, when you get, if you get pulled over by a police officer, you were speeding, and he decides to write you a warning instead of a ticket. That is a favor. All right? <laughs> That's what it is. It's a favor. It's, it's not the justice that you deserved, 
it is a favor. And he felt like for whatever reason he, that he could do that. So Festus is looking for a, he wants to do a favor to the Jew. What about a favor to Paul? Paul's been in prison for two years now and there's no accusations. That's bad news, especially for a Roman. And they all know this. He knows he inherited this thing. And if he acts on it quickly enough, maybe at least it won't come back on him. It'll go back on his, uh, on his predecessor. But he's looking to do a favor for the Jews. But Paul's a Jew. So he says this to Paul. Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? He's hoping, are you willing? He's putting his back on Paul. As if it's, you know, are you willing? Or do you have something to hide? In other words, those kind of things. Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? Now, if you're Paul, you're thinking, I started there. I was sent over to here and I've been waiting for justice for two years. And now you want me to go back to where I started from? And he also knows the plot that was made on the way there. And he probably knows the plot that's going to be there on the way back. So if you are Paul, what are you doing? I'm not going. I was already there. I was already heard there. They brought me up here. I was heard again. I kept being here, heard up here. So you can see some of the frustration that could be there on Paul. He doesn't seem to speak out of frustration, but you can certainly see that. And Paul is going to make a statement that he's picked on for by a, a number of people I've heard. I don't think he was wrong in it. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. What he's saying is this. I'm here in Caesar's judgment seat here in Caesarea. I don't need to go back to Jerusalem to stand before the Jewish judgment seat. If I have created, if I have caused a crime in Caesar's kingdom, this is where I should be judged. What do you say? I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. So enough has gone on. He says, you, you know this. I haven't done a thing to the Jews. You sent me back there. You, you know that I shouldn't be because you know I haven't done a thing to the Jews. If I need to be judged, it's here. If I don't need to be judged here, I don't need to be judged there and I should be released. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. That's a neat statement right there. If I've done anything deserving of death, go ahead and kill me. I won't object at all. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, he's going to be picked on by a number of commentators and saying that he was wrong for doing so. I don't think he was. I think he was right in doing so. I think he saw that for two years, this thing has been stuck. And it hasn't gone anywhere here. Go back in, going back to Jerusalem is not the place I ought to go. God did not say, as you have testified here before me in Jerusalem, so you will come back here and testify of me again. He said, so you will do so at Rome. So when Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, he says, I've been stuck. I have not been able to do what God called me to do. So if this is the way we'll get it done, I appeal to Caesar. You guys are going to send me to Rome and I'm going to do in Rome what God said. And you guys are going to pay the freight. <laughs> That's really what he's, he's doing. So he appeals to Caesar. Well, Festus hears this when he had conferred with the council. He answered, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. So he's basically saying, this, all right, you want to be Caesar's problem? Go ahead. I'm going to, I'm going to ship you on off there to Caesar. This whole process gets amazingly complicated 
over the next uh, couple of chapters. And we'll show you something that uh, you may not have seen as far as his trip is concerned into, into Caesar, going over to Caesar. So we'll get there in the, in the times coming. Uh, probably the next, no, it's not the next chapter, it's the one after that. So for Rome, as we said, Jerusalem is a lower venue than is Caesarea. He may as well stay right there in Caesarea. If, he's not gonna, if they're not going to do anything in Caesarea, we need to go someplace higher. And so he's going to go someplace higher. After some days, King Agrippa of Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now, Bernice is the sister of Felix's wife. And King Agrippa is, one of, uh, is, is the, one, the last king of the line of Herod. He will be the last king of the line of Herod. He's in that, uh, that grouping there of, of Herod. You know, we have all the Herods, the ones who killed James, um, to uh, uh, all the different things that they had done. John the Baptist and different Herods that were involved there. There's a few of them. But this is Herod Agrippa II. He was born in A.D. 27, 28. Uh, he was officially named Marcus Julius Agrippa. Sometimes he was just called Agrippa. He was the seventh and last king of the family of the Herod the Great, the Herodians. He was son of the first and better known Herod Agrippa, the brother of Bernice, Miram, Drusilla, the wife of uh, Antonius Felix, is Drusilla. So now we knew that Drusilla was said to be a Jew. I guess that means Bernice was, unless Drusilla converted to Judaism. But anyway... However, that was, I didn't uh, get as much information on, on that aspect of it. But this is, we're, around the Bible times, we see mostly four Herods. There were some other Herods. Of course, the great uh, uh, temple of that day was built by Herod. And that was uh, one of the things he had done as well, uh, one of the earlier ones. Now, Bernice, what little is known of her life and background, it mostly comes from the historian Flavius, Josephus. He detailed the history of the Jewish people, of course. Um, mostly she is known for her tumultuous love life. And she has quite a love life. She, um, I'll just read some of the things I got here on her. Uh, her reputation was based on the, on the bias of the Romans to the Eastern princess like Cleopatra or later Zenobia. After a number of failed marriages throughout the 40s, she spent much of the remainder of her life at the court of her brother Herod Agrippa II amidst rumors the two were carrying on an incestuous relationship. During the First Jewish-Roman War, Bernice began a love affair with the future emperor, emperor Titus Flavius Vespasianus. However, her unpopularity among the Romans compelled Titus to dismiss Bernice upon his ascension as emperor in 79. When he died two years later, so did Bernice disappear from the historical record. In other words, they don't know what happened to Bernice. <laughs> she disappeared after Titus died. So that is uh, quite the... Um, Affairs of Bernice. So anyway, Paul is showing, showing up between the, uh, he'd be heard by these folks. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix. One more thing about uh, Herod, or Agrippa, as he's called here. When he would have taken over his father's kingdom, he was too young. So he did not get the province that the Herods usually had. And when he finally came of age where he was old enough to have a kingdom, he was given a small one, which he later traded up for a bigger one. But I don't think he ever got a hold of all of the territory that his father had had. There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, 
about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat in the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. So far, what are the things that he's emphasizing? The pace with which he is putting this through. And truthfully, he is going through at a pretty good pace compared to what has been going on before. He was there three days. He was in Jerusalem ten days. He comes on back. So you're looking at a period of a couple of weeks. He's getting all this stuff done. So there is a pace, but he's emphasizing with King Agrippa the pace because he realized this has been delayed for two years. And that's not going to go well with Rome for a Roman citizen. And if he's appealed to Caesar, he's going to Rome. He's going to get the full story. And so Felix is moving this through. He's trying to show that, hey, as far as I'm concerned, I got here. We're moving this through. I don't know what happened when I wasn't here. But when I'm here, we're moving this thing through. So you're going to see him emphasizing the timetable of this this going on. Because there's a lot of things about this case that makes Festus very nervous. Where do we leave off at? Verse 17. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed. In other words, he kind of had an idea of what they would be bringing, and there was nothing of those things. It was stuff he, he was kind of surprised at. But had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. <laughs> so, now, this is an outsider looking at this. He's saying this is what they're all messed up about. We got this guy, Jesus, and they all say that he's dead. But Paul says apparently he's still alive. And this apparently is causing a, a great ruckus. They don't, they don't even see him or maybe even know him as the son of God. They just know this Jesus. This, this Jesus character, apparently he was crucified. Uh, Pilate was involved somehow. And <laughs> so they're bringing him this, this way. And, of course, uh, one of the Herods was involved with that, too. And because I was uncertain of such questions, in other words, I'm not real up on the Jewish people. He's a Roman. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be, uh, appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. And Festus jumps at this. Tomorrow you shall hear him. So the next day, again, the speed, we're, we're, we're not wasting any time here. The next, you would think he, he's just taken over the kingdom. You would think he's got other things to do beside Paul. But he knows Paul's a Roman citizen. This has been delayed for two years. He's got to move this thing along or he will come under whatever wrath what should have been for Felix. Now, if he can get uh, Agrippa involved... That certainly will help. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. So what happened was, because King Agrippa is here, he is a celebrity, he's a king, and he's come, he comes in with all the stuff the kings come in with, and, and uh, Bernice is with him, and you know the robes and the, all the, the ceremony that goes involved with that. Well, a whole lot of people are coming out to this because King Agrippa is there. And so the entire hall is filled with people, but not just anyone. We're looking at very prominent people that are there. He entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus' command, Paul was brought in. So Paul is going to have an audience of Festus, one of the new governors, King Agrippa, 
one of the kings over one of the provinces of, of the, the kingdom. And he's also going to have all the prominent men of the city, the city of Caesarea, not Jerusalem. These are prominent Romans. All those prominent men. And the commanders. These are the commanders of the Roman army that are there. So we have all the commanders. We have the prominent men of the city. And then anyone else who gets... But it's filled. It is full of people. And Paul is going to get a chance to address them. Well, this is, this is quite something else. Now, just uh, now how many times we, we had Paul was called up numerous times to Felix. And to, uh, I guess his, his wife was there maybe. But uh, these folks got to hear the gospel before uh, uh, his wife, who was Jewish. I know that she was there at least on one occasion and probably some other ones too, since she was Jewish. And she heard these words of Paul. And so before she dies over in Pompeii, which wasn't too long after this whole, this whole incident, uh, she heard the words of the gospel and she had a chance to change her life. Whether she did or not, it's up to that. But Paul had the opportunity to do that. How many other people would have had the opportunity to do it? And that would not have occurred unless Paul went to Jerusalem, which everyone said. So, so many people say that he missed God in, in going there, which, um, again, I'd, I wouldn't tell Paul that he missed God at all. He, he wrote the book as far as following God and doing what God says to do. So at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who were here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. <laughs> so apparently he got that word too, that he, was, he got this from Felix. But uh, this, none of this stuff has gone on when Festus was there. But the word of the incident came on that he, did, he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. He's going to mention this a few times. His concern is twofold. One, the length of time Paul has been held in prison with no accusations. And two, the fact that he has to write a letter to accompany Paul to go to Caesar. That letter must, just as the commander had written a letter to Felix and listed what had gone on so far, this is what Festus now has to do. Felix didn't do it. He was, a, he was chicken. If he was going to bump it up, he, he should have done it. But, of course, Paul didn't appeal to Caesar. He didn't necessarily have to, but if he was going to bump it up to anybody, he would have to write a similar letter. And so Festus knows Paul doesn't go without a letter. What am I going to write in this letter? Why am I... Uh, sending a case to Caesar. This is the guy who runs the kingdom. Why am I taking up his time? You don't want the idea that uh, uh, Caesar Augustus sits down and says, all right, let's hear this case. Who sent me this case? Why did he want to waste my time? There's no charges against this man. There's no proof against this man. Why is he sent to me? I think he would be kind of mad because Caesars are not known for their patience. And um, he, could, he could be a little bit nervous about having to do this. But he just could go on that, well, Paul appealed. What he should do is let him go because there's no evidence there. But he's not, he wants to do a favor to the Jews. So he's got himself in a terrible spot. All he has to do is uphold the law. Be on the side of truth. Uphold the law. This is what the law says. The law says he hasn't done anything. He needs to go. And that'd be it. But when I found he committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing 
certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination is taking place, I may have something to write. <laughs> he said, let's all get here as brainstorm. Let's figure out what has this guy done? Let's just write something down in his accusation and sort of, or to send it on up. So two times already he has mentioned something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Three times he mentions, I need to have something to write. Can you tell this is something that's big on his mind? So again, he says to Agrippa and Bernice that he has nothing certain to write. This is repeated three times. So accusations, just as we saw with the truth, accusations need to be clear, concise, and written. There need to be clear charges. You need to be concise. And just the fact that you put this in writing almost forces the first two. Have you ever tried to, to write something out? I mean, you can talk something out and you can do pretty good. But if you ever have to write it, you know, you start it and you, ah, that's not right. And you, you start it again and you, you keep on going, you keep working at it. Because the whole idea is if you write it, it needs to be a lot more concise than if you speak it. So this whole idea of, of writing it down kind of forces that it needs to be clear and needs to be concise. And the reason for that is because they need to be founded on truth, not emotion. Accusations need to be founded on truth, not emotion. So the same way that truth is based on being clear, concise, calm. If you're going to write an accusation, it needs to be founded on truth. If it's founded on emotion, it's going to be tough to be clear and concise. But if it's founded on truth, then there are facts involved. There's proof involved. And you can be clear. And you can be concise. None of which can happen here for Paul because there is no truth. It's all emotion. They're upset. They're mad. They're angry. But there's nothing substantive to it. Well, we tie this into the enemy. The enemy comes to accuse much like that of Paul. The enemy comes and he tries to make accusations against us. And uh, he'll try and base some things in fact. But the, the, the fact remains, well, the blood of Jesus has covered that. The blood of Jesus has washed that away. He's the accuser of the brethren, that's what he's called. He comes to accuse. But he has to base it on truth. What often happens is the enemy comes in and he tries to get us to believe the truth of an accusation when it's actually just based on emotion. If you get the people to believe the truth of the accusation, he gets them compromised in their walk. He gets them compromised in their joy, compromised in their peace, compromised in the, the way that they walk in love. They're compromised all the way around because they've left the truth and they followed after an accusation. This is a tactic that the enemy uses. He simply accuses us. Well, you're not sin free. You've got this and this and this going on. God can't use you. That's not founded on any truth at all. It's not founded on the word. It's founded on emotion. And if he can get you to buy into that, he's got you. It's what they try and do here. It's what they try and do today. It's done all over. Accusations have to be based on truth. So whenever the enemy comes up to you with an accusation, take it back to the Word of God. What's the Word say? If he cannot uh, accuse you according to the Word of God, which he won't, and if you know the Word of God, he can't. anything he accuses us of will not stand. Whatever it is that he tries to accuse us of, Jesus has got an answer for it. And Jesus, as our defender, 
before the Father. He's always clear, concise, and calm. Because he's already has a, he already has the victory. He's already won. He's clear. He's concise. And he's calm. Just look at all the times that the, the word of the Lord came to someone about anything. It was always clear and concise. No matter what it was. You go through the Bible. You look at the, ones, the, the commands that were given to Moses. You look at the command that was given to Joshua. You look at the command that was given to David. You look at the command that was given to Paul. You go into the modern day things. Brother Hagin will always talk about the command that was given to him. Teach my people faith. Clear. Concise. <laughs> you can just, just do that. Brother Keith used to always talk about the command that was given to him. Help, Brother Heavy, Brother Hagin. You can't get more clear than that. <laughs> he, he didn't understand quite ex- exactly how clear that was. He would tell a lot of times. He said, oh yeah, I'm called to help Brother Hagin. Huh. I guess that's helping him. And so uh, he would do these things. And, and uh, it, God's very clear, very clear. Anytime that something comes around that's not clear and it's not concise, you don't have to wonder where it's from. What God does is clear. It's concise. And he's very calm. Doesn't have to get emotional. Doesn't have to get upset. Doesn't have to rant and rave. Whenever we see these people around town, around the media, whoever it is is being covered, uh, doing whatever, you're going to notice a definite lack of clarity, concise, and calm. And I'll tell you right there, they're not of the truth. Something to think about as you ponder during the week. Go through the Word of God. Go through the men and women of God that you know. Go through the uh, people who pretend to be of God and just examine them in those three things. Clarity, concise, calm. How they rank up on that? Pretty much will show you where they rank on the, on the truth of God's word. People that are of the truth know they don't have to prove it. The truth proves itself. People who have a lie feel like they have to prove it. Because they know if you scrutinize the lie, it will never stand. Father, we thank you that we stand on the truth, the truth of your word. We don't have to make it true. We don't have to produce the proof. The facts are there. All we need to do is to shed light on the truth. You told us, Father, in your word to proclaim the truth. And that's what we're out here to do. We must always keep these things in mind. Keep Paul as our example, as many others are as well. We need to be clear. We need to be concise. And we always need to be calm. For we're on the winning side. Father, we thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.